This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Darkcast Network, where the light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 155, staying alive. Buiti binafi, bienvenidos bitches. Thank you for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, able-bodied, white dudes. What? They're just not. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment, we see you, commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a Black Latinx woman, and I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. It's not her fault, and we forgive her. (laughs) (laughs) We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602 935 I almost forgot to sing it. <laughs> oh, my friend. I was just on a roll. <laughs> so anyway, we may feature any voicemail you uh, record on a future episode. Correct. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Patreon. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Hannah Okuish, a Native American girl who murdered another girl in, get this, 1786. Wow. So she wasn't a serial killer, but her story is very interesting nonetheless. 
And her story has been told by numerous people. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if the cultural context has been given the um, attention that it It has, has, that it it deserves. (laughs) No. And that's what we're here to do. But before we get into it, how you doing? I'm good. Uh, getting super excited for CromCon. <laughs> Me it's too. just around the corner. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I did want to mention that we had a discussion a couple of weeks ago about the ways parents can help their kids in school if they mm-hmm. have behavioral issues or learning issues. And we talked mm-hmm. about IEPs or uh, individualized education programs. Yeah, yeah. But I guess I made some teachers mad again. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. No, never our intention. <laughs> No. First of all, this is only about an hour and 15 minute podcast. Any discussion we have obviously is not truncated. um, It's it's not. We don't have enough time to solve the issues. It's just it's a conversation. It's a start. Right. Um, Right. And it was not meant to excoriate teachers. Absolutely not. We know. We know that, Beth. We love you. We know. (laughs) (laughs) But I did mention some things that happened to me as a parent and to my daughter as an educator. Mm -hmm. Um, These were anecdotes and I didn't mean to imply that all or even most teachers are doing the things that I was talking about. Yeah. And, and to be honest, teachers are doing the Lord's work. <laughs> Absolutely. I have Absolutely. most respect for people who do that work. And if you as a teacher are not doing the things that I mentioned, I wasn't talking about you. Hello. <laughs> but I'm sure as a teacher, you've seen others do those kinds of things on occasion. And uh, I would imagine it drives you as nuts as it drives me. Yeah. Anyway, again, yeah. I was talking about a small minority and I apologize if I sounded like I was talking about teachers as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah, Beth, that's all we do. Um, I sure I am sure um, we're only what, five minutes into recording this. I'm sure I've made so many people angry. (laughs) It's what I do. Um, But if it's I mean, if if I make a mistake, if we make a mistake at Fruit Loops, we want all we can do is just cop to it and try to do better next time. Yeah. Um, The the conversation about teachers um, is a complicated one because America. Yeah. And so I think it warrants as much discussion as can be had about it to t- tackle it. And I think um, that your comments, um, I did not find them offensive. I I, I am not a teacher myself, um, but I have many in my family. Um, I also am a parent just like you. And it's something that affects all of us. And so um, sometimes there's not a right way to have a conversation. You just have to have it. Yeah. Sometimes you just blurt stuff out. And, yeah. And, and I think that's- obviously I'm, I'm still bitter about things that happened to me, uh, when my kids were little. So maybe it comes out that way. What you described happening to your son was infuriating. Yeah. And I, and I, I it was absolutely warranted. I think your, your, where your anger was placed because it was, it was a fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, but that doesn't mean that you are um interrogating or criticizing the entire profession. No, this, I'm this, absolutely not. Because like yeah. I said, I have the utmost respect for yeah. teachers. Yes, absolutely. And this kind of reminds me of the, the just the bad apple conversation in general, which given the subject matter that we talk about on our show, people of color, um, minorities, underrepresented groups, oppressed groups, justice, equity, it comes up a lot. And again, 
we do our best to have really fruitful conversations. Um, fruit loops. Fruit, hey, that's <laughs> where fruit loops. But um, the, the bad apple conversation is sort of, I don't want to say it's been weaponized, but um, if we think of a thing as like an orchard, if there's a bad apple, then the whole orchard, right, is 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 messed up. And it's yeah. just something that needs... <laughs> but it doesn't uh, mean that every single apple in the orchard is bad. <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so um, it's a hard conversation to have and I think I uh, sh- shout out to you for just telling your truth and being honest with the people well, thanks. and that's all I think anybody can ask for and I need more of it tell me more <laughs> bad stories <laughs> oh but that was a tough one and your apology was beautiful Beth. Well, so I hope you. Pe- I hope the people listening can um, appreciate it and um, if I made you mad <laughs> get in line anyway uh <laughs> Now we're going to get into some <laughs> listener letters here. Well, hello, <laughs> angels. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, me, oh, my. So this week, we don't have any Patreon. The bag is empty, except for one lonely little voicemail. <laughs> yes, but it is a beautiful yes, one. So we're going to play it right now. Here goes. Hi, Wendy and Beth. My name is Leona. I left you guys a message a long time ago on Instagram when I first found your podcast, because I was saving you from this pandemic that we're still going through, <laughs> even though people think we're not going through it. I'm listening to the episode today on March 31st, and Beth said it was her birthday, and I had to get on and wish you a happy birthday. Uh-huh. My birthday is March. It's on March 16th, oh, so I don't know what day oh, that birthday is in, but happy birthday uh-huh. to you. <laughs> it's your birthday, wow. yeah. Happy birthday to you. Oh, my God. Also, Wendy, wow. I hope you don't mind me feeling you shine and singing her a little song. That's oh, beautiful. I, I, love I have it. a podcast that... We actually do together about crimes in New York. It's called the Lady of Crime Podcast. Oh, wow. You guys listen if you oh. want to. But that's it. Happy birthday, Beth. Keep putting up all the podcasts because I love it so much. Bye. I can't believe I left this message. <laughs> Leona, that was fantastic. I believe she said her podcast is called The Lady of Crime Podcast. Yeah, and I get quick that out. Hip hop air horn for Leona. Yeah, thank you, Leona. And you have a beautiful voice. Oh my God, like butter. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) You know, Leona, you've got a future in this. Oh, but so, so grateful. Thank you so much for reaching out to us. So we're going to take a little break and then we're going to get to the story when we come back. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, under eating, and overeating. Okay, so the copy here says to talk about my experience with stress. Oh boy, <laughs> do you have an hour? Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> Work, bills, life, family. I could go podcast. on for a very, yeah, <laughs> podcast, a very long time. And I actually do 
though in therapy, which is so helpful for me so I can manage, deal and get through it. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less and grind all the time. Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com fruit. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash fruit. All right, guys, it's it's time for me to come clean. It's okay. it's time for me to tell the truth. Right. It's time for me to spill the beans. Okay. It's time <laughs> to fess up. It's time to keep it a buck. Keep it 100. Are you going to get to it? Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. So sometimes after dark, I sneak away and play Best Fiends. Others may wonder about my mysterious disappearances. They say, who does she think she is? David Blaine? David Copperfield? I say none of the above. In fact, I'm having so much fun playing Best Fiends. Ever heard? of it? Why, yes, I have. (laughs) I love Best Fiends. I love collecting the little monsters when you play so I can level up my fiends. Also, I love going in for the super long matches to free up the board and beat levels. I am happy to report that I am on level 440. That's amazing. (laughs) Okay, friend, I see you flexing over there. (laughs) Now, Best Fiends is a free-to-download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting new levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. I am on level 304. Beth, tell them about the offline play. Yes, of course. (laughs) There is offline play, so you don't even need Wi-Fi or the internet. Oh, good. So download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. And we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Hannah Ocuish, a 12-year-old Native American girl who murdered a 6-year-old white girl in Connecticut way back in 1786. And this subject was researched and written by Minnie. Minnie deserves all the hip-hop air horns, but here's one. And also because Minnie just keeps coming with the fire hot takes, which you'll see. Another one. So there you go, Minnie. That was for you. Uh, so now we're going to get into some stats. I just did the hip hop air horn. I don't want to hurt anybody's ears. So um, Hannah Okuish had one known victim, Eunice Bowles, who was age six. So now we're going to get into the setting. This is a hefty one. So yeah, get your chewing molars ready because it's a lot to chew on. <laughs> So the setting's New London, Connecticut, 1786. Historically, Connecticut is part of New England, as well as part of the tri-state area or the metropolitan New York area, which is made up of New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey. Connecticut is the southernmost state in the New England region of the United States. Now, these are your old stomping grounds, right? So you'll be able to chime in and... And let us know. So I used to live in Connecticut. Yep. As of the 2010 census, it has the highest per capita income, hmm, second highest level of human development behind Massachusetts, and highest median household income in the United States. It is bordered by Rhode Island to the east, Massachusetts to the north, New York to the west, and Long Island Sound to the south. Its capital is Hartford, and its most populous city is Bridgeport. Connecticut is the third smallest state by area, the 29th most populous, and the fourth most densely populated of the 50 states. Wow. The 
coasts of New England have been the site of defensive forts and home base for commerce, fishing, whaling, and shipbuilding industries. The Connecticut River, Thames River, and ports along Long Island Sound have given Connecticut a strong maritime tradition which continues to this day. Hmm. Connecticut's Mystic Seaport recreates an early American whaling village. There, visitors can explore the last wooden whaling ship in the world, the Charles W. Morgan. Not interested. Connecticut <laughs> is also home. There. Oh, you have? Yeah. It's kind of cool. <laughs> it, it is? Like, uh, yeah, an old old wooden ship, like a pirate ship. Well, you know what I want to know is where are all the slave ships? Did yeah. you hide them? Did they yeah. burn them down? Where are they? <laughs> Interesting, but uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, Connecticut is also home to the first nuclear-powered submarine, the U.S. Nautilus. The state also has a long history of hosting the financial services industry, including insurance companies in Hartford County, because Hartford Insurance Company is a yep. huge company, and hedge funds in Fairfield County. The state is named for the Connecticut River, which approximately bisects the state. The word Connecticut is derived from various anglicized spellings of Connecticut. Okay. A Mohegan Peacot word that has been translated as Long Tidal River or Upon the Long River. I really like that word, Connecticut. It sounds delicious and... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, when I, I just love it. There's a lot of words in Connecticut and New England in general that, that are really interesting like that. Yeah, because they came from indigenous people yep, who were there first. They certainly did. Uh-huh. So evidence of human presence in the Connecticut region dates to as far back as 10,000 years ago. The peoples inhabiting the area were nomadic and shared languages based on Algonquin. The Connecticut region was inhabited by multiple Native American tribes, which can be grouped in into the Nipmuc, the Sequin, which included the Tungsis, Skagdakok, Podunk, Wangunk, Hamanaset, and Quinnipiac, the Matabesic, and the Peacot Mohegan. Some of these groups still reside in Connecticut, including the Mohegans, the Peacots, and the Pagasets. The first European explorer in explorer, there's that word again. Explorer in Connecticut was Adrian Block, a Dutch ship's captain, trader, and privateer who explored the region in 1614. Dutch fur traders then sailed up the Connecticut River, which they called Versch Rivière or Fresh River, and built a fort at Dutch Point in Hartford. The Connecticut colony, an English colony, was originally a number of separate smaller settlements at Windsor, Weathersfield, Saybrook, Hartford, and New Haven. The first English settlers came in 1633 and settled at Windsor and then at Weathersfield the following year. John Winthrop the Younger of Massachusetts received a commission to create Saybrook Colony at the mouth of the Connecticut River in 1635. But the main body of settlers came in one large group in 1636. They were Puritans from Massachusetts Bay Colony, led by Thomas Hooker, who established the Connecticut Colony at Hartford. The fundamental orders of Connecticut were adopted in January 1639 and have been described as the first constitutional document in America. The subject of this week's episode, Hannah Akuish, was the daughter of a Pequot woman. The traditional homelands of the Pequot included the eastern woodland 
Highlands area or Thames Valley region in eastern Connecticut. The Pequot now reside on two reservations in southeast Connecticut. I have to say that my mind was blown learning about the Pequot history, researching yeah. this case. Like, wh- I don't remember this at all in, ever. in my history classes. I didn't ever learn about this. And it's yeah. horrific. Yes. Uh, so much of the archaeological, linguistic, and documentary evidence now available demonstrates that the Pequot were indigenous in that area for thousands of fucking years, Mining their beeswax. By the time of the founding of Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay colonies, the Pequot had already attained a position of political, military, and economic dominance in central and eastern Connecticut. They occupied the coastal area between the Niantic tribe of the Niantic River of Connecticut and the Narragansett in western Rhode Island. The Pequot numbered some 16,000 persons in the most densely inhabited portion of southern New England. The smallpox epidemic of 1616 to 1619 killed many of the Native Americans of the eastern coast of New England, but it hadn't yet reached the Pequot, Niantic, and Narragansett tribes. When European colonizers first moved in near the Pequot, the numbers of colonizers were small, and the colonizers acted peacefully, trading goods and exchanging information. Eventually, more and more colonists began to arrive and began to behave in a forceful manner to upset the Pequot. Like, what's, wait, wait a minute, guys. Like, relax. <laughs> what pause. The fuck are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> uh, why are you so pressed? Why are you so thirsty? Can we relax? <laughs> In 1633, the Dutch established a trading post called the House of Good Hope at Hartford. There they executed the Pequot Sachem, or chief, named Tatobin, because of an alleged violation of an agreement. Mm. After the Pequot paid the Dutch a large ransom, they returned Tatobin's body to his people. Hmm. That's, that's terrible. Yeah. His successor, elected by the Pequot people, was named Sassicus. And uh, Minnie says, I love that name. He sounds sassy. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Minnie. I like that. I agree. I like the name as well. Um, And this violation of an agreement, um, these alleged agreements throughout the history of colonization, I think are shameful. Um, And uh, I don't know what what this particular agreement was, but I can imagine it was some fuck shit. Anyway, (laughs) the same year, an epidemic devastated all the region's tribes and historians estimate that the Pequot suffered the loss of 80% of their wow. population. Yeah, that's that's devastating. Yeah. Um, coincidence? Uh, I think not. Now, <laughs> by 1636, Pequot survivors may have numbered only about 3,000. Wow. The original number was like 16,000. It's That's, in, that's, insane. that's and, insane. And, and we've yeah. said this before, that the part of the decimation of indigenous communities in the North Americas has been due to disease, not because white people, white colonists were so crafty necessarily. Yeah. Um, or so good at... They're so awesome, yeah. They weren't really that awesome. They were just dirty motherfuckers. (laughs) The Pequot found themselves stuck between the Narragansett Bay and the Connecticut River, and resentment began to grow within the tribe. Several quarrels had been taking place between the British and the Pequot over the previous years. It all came to a head in 1636 when a Pequot person was framed for murdering a Boston trader on Block Island. An expedition was sent to destroy native villages and the crops of the Pequot. 
So, um, that's that's a great way to settle a dispute, guys. (laughs) So this made the tribe more defensive and more determined to protect their homeland. Of course, clergymen encouraged violence. Clergymen. Clergymen. (laughs) Men of God. Hmm, not my Jesus. Let's get all violent up in this hazel. I, 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 no, no, that's, that's not what Christian values are really about. Uh, But they encouraged violence and British settlers decided to fight. The short but deadly Pequot War of 1637 was headed up by Captain John Mason and John Underhill. A lot of Johns. Can you think of more exciting names? (laughs) We just mentioned how juicy and delicious the indigenous names for places were. But for human beings, you guys pick John? (laughs) Anyway, on the British side. (laughs) (laughs) The British had the help of the Mohegan and Narragansett tribes. The Pequot's main fort, located at Mystic, Connecticut, was attacked by surprise, then burned and pillaged. Mm. Nearly 600 Pequot were burned alive or slaughtered. The Pequot decided to escape in small groups. One group escaped to Long Island, another to the interior of the state. The last group was led by Satchem, or Chief, Sassacus, who was caught near Fairfield, Connecticut. Around 1,500 Pequot warriors were killed in battles or hunted down and executed. Pequot women and children were captured and distributed as spoils of war to be enslaved or to work as household servants. Uh, Of those enslaved, many were awarded awarded to other tribes who had pledged their allegiance to the English. War is nasty, y'all. It is. But some were also sold as slaves in Bermuda and the Caribbean islands. A few escaped to join the Mohawk and the Niantic tribes on Long Island. Eventually, some returned to their traditional lands, where family groups of friendly Pequots had stayed. Sassacus, who managed to escape with a few others, was caught and killed by the Mohawk. The Mohegan people then took possession of all Pequot land. The Mohegans treated their Pequot captives so severely that officials of Connecticut Colony eventually stepped in and removed them. Wow. Wow, that's nuts. Yeah, I'm surprised. Uh, Wait a minute. (laughs) That must have been bad. (laughs) White people doing the right thing. What? (laughs) So the government resettled the remaining few tribe members on the Mystic River. Connecticut established two reservations for the Pequots in 1683. The Eastern Pequot Reservation in North Stonington, Connecticut, and the Western Pequots or Mashantucket Pequot Reservation in Ledyard. The population never grew back after the war. The number of tribe members had dropped down to about 200 in the late 20th century. That's That's, sad. Yeah, it's really sad. The western boundaries of Connecticut have been subject to change over time. The Hartford Treaty, which the or with the Dutch, was signed on September 19, 1650, but it was never ratified by the British. According to it, the western boundary of Connecticut ran north from Greenwich Bay for a distance of 20 miles, provided the said line come not within 10 miles of Hudson River. Hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) This agreement was observed by both sides until war erupted between England and the Netherlands in 1652. Conflict continued concerning colonial limits until the Duke of York captured New Netherland in 1664, which then became New York. Oh, that's a kind of an interesting tidbit of history. Yeah. Anyway, Yale College was, oh, Yale, Yali, was established in 1701. (laughs) 
1701, providing Connecticut with an institution to educate clergy and civil leaders. So we can condone violence. Uh, hooray! Yeah. Well, they were the ones calling for the war. I, I, I do recall that. I remember in the story. that, yeah. So the Congregational Church, a Protestant church with roots in Calvinism, dominated religious life in the colony as well as town affairs. With more than 600 miles of coastline and rivers, Connecticut developed during its colonial years a maritime tradition that would later produce booms in shipbuilding, marine transport, naval support, seafood production, and leisure boating. Woo! <laughs> yes. Woo! I know jets. I'm picturing them on jet skis. Woo! Rihanna floats by. What's up? Um, I was just thinking about the religious um, and colonial um, history together, and we'll talk about this later, but the punishment you described or, or taught me about the um, church's history of punishment and how horrific it is yeah. and how it has deep roots in the system that we have today. And yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, just ugh. Uh, so according to a database of U.S. Customs records in the two decades leading up to the 1776 and the American Revolution, Connecticut boatyards launched about 100 sloops, schooners and brigs, the largest being the 180 ton Patient Mary launched hmm. in New Haven in 1763. Is that a place you visited too? Uh, New Haven, but not Patient Mary. No. Okay. <laughs> Connecticut's first lighthouse was constructed in 1760 at the mouth of the Thames River with the New London Harbor Lighthouse. Wow. Connecticut was an active participant in the American Revolutionary War. In the wake of clashes between British regulars and Massachusetts militia at Lexington and Concord, Connecticut's legislature authorized the outfitting of six new regiments in 1775. If it wasn't in Hamilton, it didn't happen. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just kidding. So there were there were there were some 1200 Connecticut troops on hand at the Battle of Bunker Hill in June 1775. In 1775, David Bushnell invented the turtle the world's first submarine. Oh, wow. Turtle. That is so cool. <laughs> Which the following year launched the first submarine attack in history against wow. a British warship at anchor in New York. Take that, England. <laughs> The state was also the launching site for a number of raids against Long Island and provided men and materials for the war effort, especially to Washington's army outside New York City. I was going to burst into song and then I didn't. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> Here, rewind the moment. I'll pretend New like York I didn't hear City. you. <laughs> General William Tryon raided the Connecticut coast in July of 1779, focusing on New Haven, Norwalk, and Fairfield. At the outset of the American Revolution, the Continental Congress assigned Nathaniel Shaw Jr. of New London as its naval agent in charge of recruiting privateers to seize British vessels, with nearly 50 operating out of the Thames River. This led to a raid of New London and Groton Heights in September 1781 by Benedict Arnold. Wait a minute! That's a real person. Yeah, it who is. had turned traitor to the British. Oh, what <laughs> wow. a dick. Well, well, it sounds like, the I don't know. I, I mean, they're all losers, if you ask me. On January 9th, 1788, Connecticut was admitted into the Union. And this brings us to the time during which our story occurs in New London, Connecticut. 
on the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Get ready for your starring role in a thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes, danger, and romance. That's right, it's June's Journey, and you play June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries. Ooh, you'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, find objects, and claim rewards. The visuals are fire. It's like a party for your eyeballs. (laughs) As you play this thrilling adventure full of hidden clues, immersive scenes with danger and romance in full force. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. It really is a sweet escape. I like to play when I need a mental pick-me-up. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. So here we go into Hannah Okuish's early life. So she was born in March of 1774 in Connecticut, which at the time was still part of British America. In the original articles on the case, she was referred to as mulatto. Um, That horrible term, meaning mixed race, derived from the word mule, which is a mix of a horse and a donkey, not a human being. Not nice. No. As we mentioned during the history section, she was the daughter of a Pequot Native American woman. Her father was not identified and was of another race. Some accounts say he was black. Some say he was of an unknown race. It's interesting. I I don't know what to deduce from the multiple versions. Right. So since the original articles on the case simply say mulatto, um, it may later have been misinterpreted as half black. Had she been half black, there's a good chance she might have been simply taken and enslaved as Connecticut kept black slaves until much later in history than many of the other northern states. No! Uh, so <laughs> many many suspects that her father was actually white and um, someone in the community who didn't want 
to admit to it, which is also entirely possible. By the way, Beth, I was going to ask as I was reading this script, do you know who uh, the rapper Mulatto is? No. Okay, so there's a rapper from, she's from Houston, and she has a white mom and a black daddy. Um, and uh, she's real, real hot right now. I'm trying to think her, she has a song right now out with, with Mariah Carey called uh, Big Big Dick Energy, I want to say, or <laughs> <laughs> Big Pussy Energy, something like that. Anyway, she's, she, uh, she is a really good, like, t- as far as bars, she's very talented. Her name, uh, her stage name was Mulatto, and uh-huh. she um, is young, and she learned that the term mulatto was really offensive and derogatory especially as a black woman like you can't be out here in these streets like you know perpetrating more fucked up shit so she was like you know what i'm gonna change my name so now she's big lotto she changed her name because of how offensive the term mulatto she didn't realize it she she didn't realize it and a lot of people didn't but big lotto is out here in these streets and we are happy about it anyway you can continue the story this culture corner is over (laughs) Abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison once called Connecticut the Georgia of New England, and the nickname remained for good reason. Slavery in Connecticut dates as far back as the mid-1600s and remained legal until 1848, long after most northern states outlawed it. I wonder what was going on in Connecticut that made them need enslaved people so badly. Are they just really lazy? (laughs) I don't know. So some accounts say she was an orphan. Some say she was illegitimate and that her mother was an alcoholic and she was taken from her to be put into foster care. She was sometimes described as having an intellectual disability and some accounts say her mother abandoned her because of this. Now this is from Minnie. She says her gut feeling is that these were all excuses to simply take the child from her mother because she was mixed race. Though I have nothing really to back that up other than it feels like it makes the most sense. And I'm going to have to say Minnie, you are correct. Hit the Daily Double music for Culture Corner. (laughs) So there is a case, and I know we'll touch into it, Iquat. It's set to be heard in front of the Supreme Court at this next session about essentially protecting white people's rights to remove specific. This case is specifically about indigenous children, but BIPOC children in general. And indigenous children account for maybe 2% of the United States population, but are overrepresented in the foster care system. Hmm. And so um, my belief is that there is an, an overwhelming effort by the United States to remove these kids from their homes, their families, and from their culture. Um, because White ice is colder? No, it's not. Uh, today, in 2022, uh, as I said, indigenous children are overrepresented. Colonizers decimated indigenous communities and created the foster care system partly to use indigenous children as tools to remove them from their communities and from their land, which, yeah. by the way, currently indigenous land again, represents a very small portion of the United States area, but is like trillions and gazillions of dollars in natural resources that the U.S. is like, uh-oh, we Once put them on their reservations. On, yeah. Uh-oh, maybe we shouldn't have did that. Um, anyway, so um, they would, in the past and in to this day, threaten to take children away if they didn't agree to the terms set by the by by white people or white Christian people or the far right. 
And her mother may have been an alcoholic. Maybe Hannah was the product of rape. We don't know. But her mother was drinking heavily. She wasn't because it was like, it was so fun. Woo. Yeah. My fam, my, <laughs> my culture just went through this war. Woo. Yeah. We you know, this yeah, is great. This is great. Yeah. Almost everybody I knew died. <laughs> yeah. Hooray. No, absolutely not. And if you are paying attention during the setting portion, clearly there is some generational and racial trauma here that her mother was dealing with. And I think. It's also fair to say that Hannah was also a victim of. Yeah. So I'm done now. All right. <laughs> so this this was the late 1700s. And though some of the articles mention Hannah being placed in foster care, foster care in this case is just a fancy wording for Hannah being placed as a servant in a white household. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She would not have had any choice in the matter and would have been more or less the same as an indentured servant mm-hmm. with no true hope of ever really becoming free. Yeah, there was no I mean, there was nobody to speak for her. I mean, yeah. even even if her and tribe what would did she speak do up. even if she, you know, in this society, what's she going to do? You She's know? just a little brown girl in a white yeah. girl, a white world. Yeah. Uh, so so we couldn't find exactly what year she had been taken from her mother and placed as a servant in the home of a white widow named Mrs. I, Ichabod, Ichabod. Ichabod. Okay, Miss. I'll see you, Miss Ichabod Rogers. But she had to have been age six or younger, which, if you know a six year old, that's a that's devastatingly really young. young age to be yeah. working for They're somebody. They're babies. Mm-hmm. Um, she was arrested for the first time in New London community when she was just six years old. She effectively did not have a childhood because of this quote unquote foster care. So let's talk for a minute about the foster care system as it relates to Native Americans. Let's do it. Native Americans are up to four times more likely to have their children taken and placed into foster care than their non-Native counterparts. Mm -hmm. In 2020, the Oklahoma Department of Human Services reported that Native children represent more than 35% of those in foster care. Yet Native Americans make up only around 9% of Oklahoma's population. Kendra Loden, Fire Lodge Children and Family Services Foster Care slash adoption manager has said, quote, that is the definition of racial disproportionality, unquote. Are you listening? (laughs) (laughs) While the Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA, has existed since 1978 and provides added protections, numerous factors continue to impact the unequal rate of Native American representation within the foster care system. According to data compiled by the National Indian Child Welfare Association before 19 approximately 80% of Native American families living on reservations lost at least one child to the foster care system. Y'all, the foster care system is supposed to be temporary, um, but it wasn't in the case of Native kids. Additionally, more than 25% of all Native children were removed from their families, with 85% receiving placements outside of their tribes or relatives. that's That's a crime against humanity. Yeah. Per Kendra Loudon, quote, and that was even if there was no abuse, there were no issues occurring. Even if there were willing and fit family members available, these children were still adopted out to white families, unquote. Mm-hmm. No, white families and white ice is not colder. That's my <laughs> conclusion. So these policies continue to negatively impact individuals, families, and tribes. Non-tribal placement and adoption has created identity issues and disconnected feelings along with negative mental health outcomes. And I will say that as a person in a, a BIPOC person in recovery, and a lot of the spaces that I inhabit, I have um, formed relationships with 
transracial adoptees um, who were products of this um, foster care system and ended up being adopted by white families. Hmm. And it really did not serve them well. Yeah. So past federal efforts, including forced removal, boarding schools, and more, contribute to inherited trauma, which can have destructive effects on Native American family units and their dynamics. Again, per Kendra Loudon, quote, they may be living in a community where they're the only Indian person. And when people feel stress, anxiety, depression, a lot of times they cope in unhealthy ways. And that is in order to mask their trauma. Historical trauma is passed down emotionally, psychologically, internally, and also externally, unquote. I just quoted that mouse um, study in a, in a recent oh, that's episode. Right. It's, yeah. it's scientific, it's y'all. Real. It's in the genes. Yeah. The ICWA attempts to decrease the number of Native American children that are removed from their communities and culture, helping ensure the future is brighter and healthier. You can't have your culture or society continue without children. So it yeah. sets requirements for states to work directly with Native nations and establishes specific standards before removals occur. However, the law is not always followed or understood. After the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, placing children and facilitating adoptions with Native families, especially those from the same tribe, has mitigated some of the long-term outcomes that result from policies prior to ICWA. However, many states remain non-compliant. So uh, I've been following this case for a couple years, this ICWA case that's going to go to the um, Supreme Court. Supreme Court, next. yeah. So I, I, I've heard it described as ICWA, but you say ICWA. Oh, so I, I just want to make sure where people know we're talking about the same, the same ICWA. thing. ICWA, yeah, okay. okay. Okay, so according to an OKDHS report released in September of 2020, 7,774 children were in Oklahoma foster care and 322 were in tribal custody. Yet, of the 7,452 in-state custody, 2,567 were Native American. Wow, mm -hmm. that's stark. And a lot of times the removal is for something that trivial, trivial, where you could have just maybe bought the kid a coat if you saw that he seemed right. like he was cold or bought the family a meal instead of right. causing this devastation. Yeah. That's yeah. Kendra Loudon said, quote, despite the extraordinary number of American Indian children in custody in Oklahoma, foster slash adoptive parents do not currently receive substantial training about the Indian Child Welfare Act or how to care for the unique individual needs of American Indian children, unquote. You watched the um, Kaepernick story on Netflix, right? Yeah, yeah. Where well-meaning white people who adopt adopt these kids are... They just, they don't know. They just yeah. don't understand, even though they are super well-meaning. Yeah. Um, and this is just Oklahoma. Similar things are still happening across the United States and Canada. Something that might help is education and training and preventing children from entering the system in the first fucking place. Hello. Hello. <laughs> According to Loudon, quote, you should always report child abuse and neglect whenever you suspect it. But there's a lot of things that community members can do to assist families and prevent bad things from happening, unquote. This could include helping get children to school or providing contact information to parents for potential resource providers. Absolutely. Loden stressed, quote, offering support to people and not judging them is key. 
It can't hurt to offer. And that may be the one thing that family is needing to hold them together is just somebody to support them. And it can really change the dynamic of everything, unquote. Yeah. Fire Lodge Children and Family Services has numerous programs to help prevent family separation, as well as ones to get guardians back on the right path. Quote, there are many times that when a parent becomes involved with child welfare, that's the first time they have ever been offered help. It's the first time they've been able to realize that some behaviors are problematic or not helpful. So they get engaged in therapy and parenting classes and learn the skills that they were not able to due to their raising or the environment that they've been in, unquote. When CPN becomes involved in child welfare cases, Fire Lodge Children and Family Services' number one goal is reunification. Quote, as long as it's safe and appropriate, being with their family is really how a child's identity develops. If we can help a child with their family, we don't disrupt their identity or what they're learning about themselves, unquote. Fire Lodge assigns a skilled and qualified staff member to each case. These individuals work one-on-one with families and build relationships that are critical to long-term success. Loudon also sees the department's work as a way to uphold CPN's sovereignty. Quote, the reason that we do become involved in every case is we care about the families. We don't want any Potawatomi children lost from the tribe. We're trying to undo what was done to us, and there's still a long way to go when we still have a very disproportionate amount of American Indian children in foster care compared to other races. But we are seeing good things happen, unquote. That's a little ray of sunshine in yeah. this terribly bleak situation. It is. I think that's why Minnie put it in here. I'm so glad you did that, Minnie. So you can learn more about Fire Lodge Children and Family Services by calling 405-878-4831. I don't have a song for that one. I'm sorry. Or check them out on Facebook at CPN Fire Lodge. All right. Um, so now we're going to get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. You know, we covered Hannah Mary Tabs in an episode a few months back. Right. Well, here we are with another Hannah. Oh, they call a hot, hot and <laughs> Hannah, the of Connecticut, the meanest. I'm just kidding. Now I'm not going to say that about a child. <laughs> so, yeah, this time in Connecticut. And there's another Connecticut famous Hannah from around the same time. Wow. Uh, so I think Hannah must have been a popular name in the 18th century. It had to have been. And yeah. it's one of my favorite words because it's the same backwards as forwards. Oh, yeah. Look at uh, that. <laughs> so the third Hannah is Hannah Crana. Wait, that's a real person? If you're from Connecticut, here we go. <laughs> if you're from Connecticut, you might have heard of her. Her actual name was Hannah Hovey, and she was born in 1783, very close to the time of our story about Hannah O'Kewish. Hannah Hovey was a white woman who married a man much older than herself, and the two lived in Monroe, Connecticut. One day, her husband, Captain Joseph Hovey, went out for a walk. Then ended up falling off a cliff to his death. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The townspeople of Monroe, which uh, incidentally, uh, Monroe is where the Warrens lived. You know who the Warrens are? The haunted house people? Yeah, the the couple couple from The Conjuring who had the doll named Annabelle. This is is too much. Yep, they're real people. Wow. (laughs) New England is creepy. Oh, my God. Wow. And you live there. Unbelievable. 
<laughs> anyway, the townspeople of Monroe found it suspicious because Joseph knew the area well. They came to the conclusion that Hannah must have cast a spell that hmm. confused Joseph enough that he wandered off the cliff. Oh! From then on, people suspected her of being a witch with a rooster as a familiar and nicknamed her Hannah Crana. Wow. And does does the word Crana mean like I witchcraft? I have no idea. Not, okay. not a clue. Okay. Uh, maybe it, just making fun of her. Okay. Who knows? But yeah. wow. They, instead of like, uh, that is that is just a stretch of a story. She cast a spell to make him wander off. Wander the cliff. off a cliff. She, why? I, you know what? She probably walked with him and shoved him. I would. I would have thought the pushed him. I don't. I don't believe in this witchcraft. <laughs> witchcraft? No, not in my Connecticut. So, uh, she, no, bitch! It's shoving. <laughs> <laughs> so she uh she never remarried but lived alone with her chickens on her property supposedly guarded by snakes of course wow of course so her husband's death left her in poverty and hannah crana was not above using her reputation for witchcraft to extort food and firewood from her neighbors but i, I would do the same that's thing what man. we all would have did we yeah. gotta survive you know what i'm saying <laughs> Though the community seemed convinced that she was a witch, she wasn't burned or hanged for this because of the Salem witch trials, which had apparently been an embarrassment to New England. So oh. this was not something that they did anymore to suspected witches at this time. They just, you know, <laughs> shunned, shunned them and treated them like shit. Wait, I'm, I'm glad they realized they done fucked up uh, and didn't do that anymore. Progress. So legends grew up around her witchcraft, according to one tale, a neighbor renowned for her baking skills had made some pies and Hannah Crana came by as they cooled. Hannah Crana asked for one of the larger pies, but the neighbor gave her the smallest instead. So Hannah Crana put a spell on her and the neighbor's pies were never as good as they'd been before. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Her life was oh ruined. Oh my God. How could ruined. she do that? Hannah Crana, no. <laughs> Not the pies. Oh no. <laughs> That's that's gonna be my excuse if oh, I ever burn Hannah something. Crana, oh, Hannah Crana. It's a spell. <laughs> <laughs> According to another tale, a young man trespassed on her property to fish for trout in her brook. She caught him, cursed him, and he never caught another fish. Wow. In a third tale, two men driving an ox cart full of hay stopped in front of her house to mock her. Hannah Crana bewitched the oxen and the cart. The oxen stopped moving and the wheels fell off the cart. Oh, okay, no. so that's that's a good spell. Hannah I like that one. Crana, wow. <laughs> Ooh, she bad. She <laughs> Hannah Crana is different. So according to the final Hannah Crana legend, she gave instructions that when she died, she wanted her coffin carried to her grave by hand, not by cart. And she said she must be buried before sundown. Okay. When she died, her instructions were ignored. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> She's dead. How's she going to know? <laughs> yeah. Her neighbors carried her over the snowy ground by sled, but her coffin slid off of the sled. They put the coffin back on the sled and continued on, but her coffin slid off again. This pattern continued until they gave up and carried her goddamn coffin to her <laughs> grave by hand. Wow. By then, 
the sun had set. The funeral party returned to Hannah Crana's home to dispose of her belongings, only to find that the home was engulfed in flames. Whoa! I wonder <laughs> if she was really dead. Uh, so people still share stories about this supposed witch to this day. Today, Hannah Crana lies beneath a gravestone in Gregory's Four Corners burial ground on Spring Hill Road in Trumbull, Connecticut, right next to Monroe. Um, John Trumbull is a, a Hamilton reference oh. and Trumbull Another is, uh, yes, uh, it's a painting that has to do with, I want to say slavery. Anyway, um, don't quote me on that. Don't fact check me on any of this. According to modern legend, a spectral figure sometimes appears in the graveyard and causes passing cars to crash. Wow. Ooh. Hannah Krashna. <laughs> Spooky. Yikes. <laughs> anyway, back to the story about the other Hannah. Right. Hannah Oculus. Of course. Who was about nine years old when Hannah Crana was born, and she was living in a community of white religious extremism in which people still believe that witches made pacts with the devil and cast evil curses on others. <laughs> so... I'm not going to say where we were recently, but my kids were like, man, white people are weird. And I was (laughs) like, you know what? They are. (laughs) So by the way, we are going to break tradition on this episode and continue to refer to Hannah O'Kewish by her first name because she was a child throughout this story. Even though she did do something terrible, she never got the chance to grow past a child's way of making decisions. Yeah. As a small child, Hannah already apparently had a reputation in the local community as a thief and a liar. Whether or not this was true, we can't confirm. Though before she escalated to murder, she had already been tried and convicted for allegedly beating up a white girl and stealing her necklace and clothes. She had been six years old at the time. Six. I just got to say, um, she's living, she's a brown girl in a white world. And any movement you make as a brown, not white person in a white community seems violent and criminal. And so my thoughts are, I don't need, I don't, she was probably just I doing regular kid I don't kid believe things. it. Yeah. Yeah. The, but, and, and just got in trouble for it. Just got popped and, for or, it. She was or somebody just lied. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That too. Absolutely. Um, But uh, anyway, at the court hearing, an unidentified individual described the six-year-old Hannah as being, quote, marked with almost everything bad. Theft and lying were her common vices. To these were added a maliciousness of disposition which made the children in the neighborhood much afraid of her. Mm. Ooh, she had a degree a of art. A six-year-old girl. A six-year-old girl, you son of a bitch. She had a degree of artful cunning and sagacity beyond many of her years, unquote. Pretty harsh description for a child of six. Yep. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. It's possible that this description was just made up to guarantee a conviction as this was a single unidentified individual who said this, uh, but we'll we'll never really know. In June of 1786, when Hannah was 12, six-year-old Eunice Bowles, the daughter of a prominent and wealthy white farmer, accused Hannah of stealing strawberries during a harvest. Hannah was said to have plotted her revenge against Eunice for this. 
On July 21, 1786, Eunice's body was discovered outside Norwich, Connecticut, a community just north of New London. A Norwich resident found her body at the side of the main road beside a stone wall just outside of town. One account described that, quote, upon examining the body, its skull appeared to be fractured, the arms and face much bruised, and the prints of fingernails were very deep on the throat, unquote. Her back and arm were badly broken and heavy stones looked to have been either placed or thrown down upon her body, arms, and legs. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. So now it's time for the investigation and the arrest. What do you got, Beth? It was only a day later on July 22nd, 1786, that investigators spoke with Hannah about Eunice Bowles. She initially claimed not to know anything about what happened to Eunice and said that she had seen a group of boys on the road in the area earlier that day that Eunice was found. People from the community searched for the boys but did not find them. Well, that's surprising that they even they even looked. They but, even took yeah. her word and looked. Yeah. Um, as they interrogated Hannah further, she continued to deny that she knew anything about it. 
But when they brought her to see Eunice's body at the Bulls' home, Hannah broke down in tears and admitted to killing the child. She said that if she could be forgiven, she would never do so again. Hannah stated she wanted to take revenge on Eunice for taking away her strawberries. So when Hannah saw the girl walking to school alone, she lured her into the woods with the promise of a gift of calico, which is a type of fabric made from cotton fibers that would have been used to make dresses at this time. I just, um, a little point, Eunice was a wealthy white girl who had everything and she did not need to, did she, did she really need to call out Hannah for the strawberry thing? The strawberries. You know I mean? Yeah. Yeah. We, we don't know exactly what happened, you know? It, yeah. I'm just I'm just saying she was a very privileged white girl in this society. And it almost struck me as um, punching down um, yeah, on absolutely. Hannah. And yeah. it was unnecessary. And, and I also think that Eunice, who is obviously a victim in this story, that kind of behavior, I think, is learned. Um, so, yeah, perhaps yeah. she saw the wealthy white grown-ups in her midst doing the same thing and believe yeah, that it was okay. Probably, probably so. It, it just makes me think of, you know, how kids can be mean. Cruel, to, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, to other kids who uh, don't fit in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah, that too. Um, you know, they're kids. Yeah. They don't really know what they're doing. And mm-hmm. a lot of it is is uh, imitation mm-hmm. and learned behavior from the adults around them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Hannah confessed that the girl followed her to the supposed gift, and once the road was out of view, she beat her with rocks and choked her, then covered her body with large stones to make it look like a rock wall had fallen on her and killed her. These types of rock walls are fairly common in New England. They were initially built year by year when fields were prepared for planting. Over the fall, winter, and spring, the freeze and thaw process breaks up rocks deep in the soil and slowly moves them up towards the surface, where they can interfere with plowing. Hmm, interesting. Um, the rocky soils had to be cleared before they could be planted each year so that the plows would not be broken. So farmers spent quite a bit of time removing rocks from the soil each spring and moving them to the edges of the field where they naturally formed a sort of boundary as they piled up. Today, the rock walls are more of a decorative feature that continues the traditional look of the area. If you visit smaller towns in New England, never going to do that. You won't see them everywhere. <laughs> never say never. You're living in a I know. All of a sudden, I'm in Stone Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Once Hannah had confessed to killing Eunice and trying to cover it up by making it look like a rock wall had fallen on her, she was immediately arrested and then was taken to a holding cell to await trial. So now we're going to get into the trial, which came pretty swiftly. Yeah, Um, they did back then. Yeah. So Hannah's trial did not proceed until October 3rd of that year, as there was a bit of pushback from the community. Wow. Because of Hannah's intellectual disability, many in the community questioned whether she was fit to stand trial, but the judge thought it appropriate to use her to send a message. Ugh, garbage. To who? There yeah. it sounds like there wasn't other many uh, there wasn't many other brown kids, so yeah. <laughs> message to whom, judge? Yeah. All the brown people, I guess. Everybody, I guess. Yeah. 
Although she was intellectually disabled, had been removed from any kind of true parenting and forced into indentured servitude at a very early age, the judge found the heinous nature of Hannah's crime outweighed any other considerations. According to the historical accounts, while spectators wept, Hannah seemed unconcerned about her fate during her trial. Unconcerned or just not understanding because she's a fucking child. Yeah. So the judge said, quote, you have killed and that in a barbarous and cruel manner, an innocent, helpless and harmless child, a child that could not possibly from its tender years have injured or done you any harm or given you any just cause of resentment, unquote. Interesting that the judge described another six-year-old child as innocent, helpless, and harmless due to its tender years, yet had allowed the jury to hear a description of Hannah when she had been a six-year-old child herself as, quote, marked with almost everything bad, unquote. I was waiting for you to say it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> was Hannah not innocent, helpless, and harmless, and of tender years when she was a six-year-old herself forced into servitude? Of course not, because they could not possibly see a brown child human person as a human being. Yeah. So no one directly intervened to give evidence on Hannah's behalf during the child. So she did not have any defense whatsoever, even though the only evidence against her was her own confession. The trial took only a day and the jury gave their verdict of guilty the following morning. Despite Hannah's age and ignoring her intellectual disability, the judge, Richard Law, a former U.S. congressman who was also the mayor of New London, used her confession to sentence her to death. Her sentence was pronounced on October 16, 1786, with a date set for December 20th of that year, five days before Christmas. Mm. The gallows were constructed behind the old meeting house in New London, near the corner of what is now Granite Street. Though Hannah was only 12 years old, colonial courts, like their former ruler Britain, allowed for children aged 7 through 13 to be hanged if what? there was, oh quote, evidence of malice, revenge, or cunning, unquote. Jeez. At the time, they did not view children the same as we do now. Okay. Uh, Children as young as 10 were even considered to be capable of sexual consent. Oh, Jesus. What the fuck? I have no words. Yeah. (laughs) As Judge Law sentenced Hannah, he also preached directly to her that, quote, the good and safety of society requires that no one of such a malignant character shall be suffered to live, and the punishment of death is but the just demerit of your crime, and the sparing you on account of your age would, as the law says, be of dangerous consequence to the public by holding up an idea that children might commit such atrocious crimes with impunity, and you must consider that after death you must undergo another trial infinitely more solemn and awful than what you have here passed through before that God against whom you offended at whose bar the deceased child will appear as a swift witness against you and you will be condemned and consigned to an everlasting punishment unless you now obtain a pardon by confessing and sincerely repenting of your sins and applying to his sovereign grace through the merits of his son Jesus Christ for mercy who is able and willing to save the greatest offenders who repent and believe in him. Unquote. So this was the judge at mm. the trial. That's well, that's nuts. <laughs> yeah. Uh I I tuned out. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it was pretty long. Well, no, just just the whole like this feels like a weaponizing of oh, religion. Oh, for sure. Um, oh yeah, and it's it, and it's it, awful. It, it's mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you've already condemned her to death. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> now you're saying she's going to be uh, punished forever and ever. You know, yeah. it just it's, ugh, it's awful. Yeah. But it also reminds me of. Uh, did you ever watch uh, Sweeney Todd? No, not yet, no, but I will. There, I will. It's on my list. <laughs> <laughs> there's a scene where um, a judge is going on like this, uh, going on and on and about the prisoner, mm-hmm. how awful they are, and they're being sentenced to death, and may the Lord have mercy on your soul and all that. And then the camera turns, and it's it's a child. Oh! Yeah, a little a little kid like eight or something yeah and and i laughed mm-hmm. um the first time i saw it because i didn't know uh-huh. <laughs> i didn't yeah. know that they actually did condemn children to death it's awful yeah. it is awful and we should also say that they did condemn children to death we still do in the united states especially um and most often it is children of color yeah um, yeah So this was still a largely Puritan community, and not only had Hannah committed murder, but she had also apparently committed the even larger offense of lacking knowledge of Christianity. Oh, my God, how dare she? (laughs) She had no Christian moral instruction and apparently didn't even know about the Christian God until after her arrest. Where are my pearls? (laughs) I need to clutch them past the smelling salts as I may faint. (laughs) Reverend Henry Channing, who visited her in jail often while she awaited her execution, declared that this religious ignorance was what made Hannah a murderer. And as such, she must be executed. Oh, <laughs> um, oh. what? Huh? Sir. <laughs> that makes no Are sense. You sure? uh, <laughs> I'm sure the Bible says a lot of stuff about like protecting children. Now children are innocent. I don't know. I, I haven't read the whole thing. It's very long, but I'm sure there's something in there. No, <laughs> anything. Uh, so not only that, but at the same time, Reverend Channing urged Hannah to repent. So her soul might be spared. He reportedly would pray with her regularly and try to instruct her enough in Christianity to save her from eternal suffering. Reports described Hannah as seeming unconcerned by her death sentence until a couple of weeks before her execution date. As the date got closer, she began to more frequently ask those who visited her how long she had to live, and she was described as becoming increasingly more agitated about it. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I hope that wasn't a surprise to anybody. Yeah. Now, yeah. if she did truly have an intellectual disability, it might have been that she did fully understand her sentencing until her execution date approached. Also, the Reverend had apparently been explaining to her on a daily basis that she was to die and that her soul would suffer forever once that happened. I can't imagine what it might have been like to be her on the day of her execution. A child. A child. Yeah. On December 20th, 1786, Reverend Channing delivered her execution sermon that was entitled God Admonishing His People of Their Duty as Parents and Masters, which held Hannah up as an example of what could happen if parents did not raise their children to be dutiful and obedient. Uh, what parents? <laughs> I know. <laughs> she the was, ones you took she for was her, you basically <laughs> enslaved, you assholes. Jesus oh, Christ. Bars, Beth. So <laughs> he, he said that... That Hannah's actions were a quote natural consequence of too great parental what? indulgence. Wow. What? Uh-huh. 
and uh, and warned that appetites and passions unrestrained in childhood become furious in youth and ensure dishonor, disease, and an untimely death, unquote. He also preached to the crowd, quote, think not that crimes are peculiar to the complexion of the prisoner and that ours is pure from these stains. Surely an idea so illiberal cannot find a place in the breast of a generous youth. What? <laughs> no. Sound like word soup to me. Yeah. No, my brothers, that that casket, notwithstanding its color, contains an immortal soul, a jewel of inestimable value, unquote. All right. This guy. Well, yeah, I mean, he probably. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't even know what to say. So he further argued that color had nothing to do in this case. Um, bullshit. And that, quote, unquote, Indian soul was still of immense value. To judge someone based on color was wrong. Wrong, I tell you. Hannah was one of our guilty race, the human race. Oh, now you want to identify as human. The (laughs) audience shouldn't focus so much on Hannah's race itself. It sounds to me that he was working a bit too hard to convince the community that she wasn't being executed simply because of her race. He thinks the reverence doth protest too much. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of upsetting to think that he felt it necessary to explain this, likely because others in the community would probably just assume that Hannah was being killed because of her race. And why would they think that? Well, because they fucking killed people right and left because of their race. Oh, yeah. Remember that Pacwat War? (laughs) (laughs) It was apparently such a commonplace thing to simply kill someone because of their race that the reverend felt it necessary to make it clear that Hannah was being killed for the crime or sin of murder. But was she? Really? Was she really? Really? No. Really? <laughs> Remember that stuff we did just a few months ago to the indigenous people? Like, forget it. We don't do that anymore. We don't this do that. Time, yeah. This, this, this right here, <laughs> this shit right here. Oh my god, this is different. <laughs> yeah. So on her approach to the gallows, witnesses said that Hannah appeared afraid, seeming to silently plead for help in her eyes as the realization hit that she was about to die. As 12-year-old Hannah took her last steps to be hanged, she thanked new London sheriff for his kindness. He then placed a hood over her head, a rope around her neck, then hanged her in front of the crowd of spectators. The crowd watched the 12-year-old mixed-race Pequot girl hang by her neck until she died of asphyxiation. I can't imagine what that would be like to have that be a normal, acceptable part of everyday life. I can't either. But um, in the United States, uh, up until not that long ago, this was a part of everyday American life, especially when it came to black and brown people. And um, let's not forget George Floyd. Um, it seems easier for the state to kill black and brown people in public and later justify it um, for bullshit reasons. Yeah. So despite Reverend Channing's sermon, had Hannah Akewish been white, I wonder if she would have been executed. If Hannah had been white, would she have been taken from her mother in the first fucking place? Not that we're saying it's okay that she killed poor little six-year-old Eunice, not at all, who had an even shorter life than Hannah did. But had they left Hannah with her mother or the Pequot community in the first place, maybe this thing never would have happened. Yeah. 
Hello. Yeah. In early 17th century America, people of color were executed far more frequently than white Americans. In fact, in New England, black people were three times more likely to be executed than white people. In the early 18th century, New England's hanging rates dropped. But this did not improve the situation for people of color. Black people were nine times, nine times, you guys, more likely to be hanged than white people. Native Americans were twice as likely to be hanged than white people. Since the United States founding, around 364 juvenile offenders have been executed. Sadly, all of the youngest children sentenced to death were children of color. James R. Seen, a 10-year-old Native American boy, was executed in Arkansas in 1885. 10 years old. Yeah. In the 20th century, both of the youngest children executed were black. 13-year-old Fortune Ferguson Jr. was executed in Florida in 1927, and George Junius Stinney Jr., we've all we've seen his um, image Picture. floating yeah. around, was electrocuted in South Carolina in 1944. He was 14, and at 5 foot 1 inch tall and 95 pounds, George Stinney was so small, the authorities had trouble strapping him to the electric chair. Only relatively recently, in 2005, in Roper versus Simmons, the Supreme Court of the United States declared capital punishment to be unconstitutional for crimes committed under the age of 18. Under Chief Justice William Rehnquist, the five to four five to four decision. What the fuck? Mm. Yeah, Over- <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Overruled Stanford versus Kentucky, which declared execution is permissible for offenders at or above the age of 16. The decision stated executing juveniles was against the Eighth Amendment's cruel and unusual punishment. And Hannah was only 12 years old. Yeah, I wonder if this would be one of those cases that, you know, posthumously gets reviewed um, and that maybe somebody might. Uh, she I, I know she killed Eunice and Eunice is a victim. Rest in power, Eunice. Right. Yeah. But um, that posthumously we could reconsider her case, um, her case's outcome um, and punishment as something we should be ashamed of. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, as we know, Hannah Okuish died on December 20th at age 12, 1786 is the year in New London, Connecticut. Hannah's death also remains the last documented execution of a female in Connecticut. Um, and this is just according to um, Minnie. Her story keeps bringing to mind Mary Bell, a white girl who committed two murders in England uh, when she was 11. I've heard of that lady. And yeah. I um, first heard about Mary Bell through the death metal band Macabre, who wrote songs about serial killers. They did? <laughs> Most of them have the usual death metal sound to them, but one is actually quite lovely. Melodic song with some slightly fucked up lyrics. It goes... <laughs> Um, and I, I'm not familiar with this song, but Beth, oh, you, you can just read it? it. Okay. I'm going to read it. Yeah. In 1968, an 11 year old girl named Mary Bell killed four year old Martin Brown. Two months later was Brian Howe, Mary Bell, child from hell. Where are you now? Are you doing well? And if you want to <laughs> sing the song, there's a YouTube link, which I suppose we'll have to put in the show notes. <laughs> so you can watch the video. And fun fact, Macabre also has a song called What the Heck, Richard Speck? <laughs> Eight nurses you wrecked. Did Richard Speck kill nurses? Yeah. Oh, my God. Eight this, of them. This sounds like so much fun. How come I've just heard about I'm today years well, it's old. it's death metal. <laughs> okay. Today years old when I found out about this band. Um, sway the meat... The remix god 
please redo these songs. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Mary, uh, she, she goes on to say, um, this is Minnie. Anyway, Mary Bell was arrested and tried, but was not executed for her crimes and was later released from prison with a new identity. As she had only been 11 years old at the time, she committed the murders. Two people she killed. Now, yeah. I kept wondering throughout the researching of Hannah's story, what might have happened to Mary Bell had she not been white and had lived in an earlier time? Well, even if she lived at the same time, if she'd not been white. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Complexion yeah. for the protection. <laughs> <laughs> so Connecticut has performed 126 pre-Furman executions from 1639 to 1960. Pre-Furman means occurring before 1968 when juvenile executions were declared unconstitutional. 24 of those executions were prior to statehood. 102 cents. Well, the number isn't getting any smaller. So, <laughs> Napatek, a Native American, was the first to be hanged for murder in what later became New Haven County on January 30th, 1639. Joseph Taborski was the last execution in Connecticut for a murder committed in Hartford County. He died in the electric chair on May 17th, 1960. Mary Johnson was the first woman executed in colonial Connecticut. She was found to be guilty of witchcraft and was hanged sometime in 1649. Sarah Bramble was the last woman hanged for murder on November 21st, 1753 in New London County. Um, and this one confused me because another source said that Hannah was the last female to be executed in Connecticut, which yeah. means this Sarah maybe was the last adult female, oh, the last okay. woman. Okay. Um, because Hannah was executed decades after Sarah. So I, I don't really know, but there you go. <laughs> Either way, these statistics suck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing to be proud of. So um, hanging was the method of execution until February 10th, 1937, when James McElroy was electrocuted for a murder committed in New Haven County. There have been 108 hangings and 18 electrocutions. The 126 electrocutions averages to be one execution every 2.54 years. Wow. Two and a half years. Um, so now we're going to get into our takes. Um, and I hate to sound like a broken record, but generational trauma has to be mentioned yeah. um, and considered in this case. I wonder if Hannah stood a chance. She's a brown girl living in a white world. Just a brown girl living in a white world. <laughs> uh, and that little white girl she killed who accused her of stealing. Did Hannah really do it? I don't know. And not, not only yeah. is generational trauma to contend with in this case, but the foster care system may have also caused harm to her. Of course, yeah. And the lack of care and compassion showed to her during her entire life, her yeah. entire short life. Yeah. And it's weird that um, as she was facing her death, she thanked that man for being kind to her just before when, when he made his speech or whatever. Um, shame on the state of Connecticut and the United States for the harm done to indigenous people, communities, families and to that little girl. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone deserves to have their life taken by another person. Nobody deserves it's to be wrong. murdered, yeah. period, whether it's the state or whoever, um, and let alone a child. So yeah. our criminal injustice system has been flawed and fucked up since the beginning and yep. uh, needs to be changed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. 
And I also think it's telling that the judge considered a six-year-old white girl innocent, but a six-year-old Native American girl was basically a bad seed. Hello? Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you see it. The whole (laughs) core of the story, really. Yeah. 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 Um, well, let us know what you think. You know where to find us. Uh, now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love to crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. What do you got, Beth? Well, here's a new one. Okay. This is from Bill Stanton, the author of Prepared Not Scared, your oh. go-to guide for staying safe in an unsafe world. Okay. And he suggests buying a pair of air horns, which are $25 each on Amazon, one for your home and one for your neighbor. For a party? <laughs> well, you could use it for a party. <laughs> but <laughs> if either of you hear this air horn, you agree to call 911 and direct first responders to the other's house. Wow. And at 2 a.m., people are going to hear that piercing alarm and knows, know that something's up. And the added benefit is that the noise could scare off a bad guy. So, I love that. Yeah. I love that. I just, I, I, I hear air horns and I think it's time to dance. But yeah. you I know mean, what? If somebody, if I was robbing somebody's house and they came out with an air horn, I'd get the fuck out of there. They're man. very, ooh, They're, man. they hurt your ears. They so really bad. do. Yeah. They really, yeah, yeah. You're mm. right. I love that. Well, thank you. Yeah, and you uh, $25 each on Amazon. Not bad. Yeah, well, now go. it's shout out time where we shout out any content by people of color, any, or women. LGBTQ people, any marginalized, oppressed, or othered groups, or any true crime goodies. Um, If you want to know more about the fuckery done to indigenous people, specifically indigenous kids in the foster care system in the United States, this land podcast, the last season was dropped at the end of 2021. We shouted it out before. But the ICWA case is a big deal because it's going to the Supreme Court like in the next quarter. So um, if you want to be prepared um, and get more background on that ICWA case, a native kids, um, check it out, this land. And then also Phoenix Rising on HBO Max. Have you heard of it? I haven't. Okay, so you know the white lady from Westwood? Her yeah. name Evan Rachel Wood. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she used to date Marilyn Manson. Yeah, I know. And apparently, all about that. I yeah. did not. Girl, <laughs> I, I was, I mean, I the, went into a rabbit hole of information about oh, that. Yeah. I was horrified, disgusted yeah. um, at the things that he, he did, did yeah. to her and other yeah. women. And so anyway, this documentary, it's two parts. So it's not it's not too time consuming is about his victims, um, victims of sexual assault in general, the legislation that the victims fought for after their victimization um, and survival. Um, and uh, Evan Rachel Woods, she recounts her abuse at the hands of Marilyn Manson and bravely. Um, and uh, it's absolutely vile what he did um, and seemed to get away with. Yeah. Um, and I was really just blown away by these He's women's disgusting. resilience. Yeah. yeah. I, oh my God. God, I can't like I'm ashamed to say that I was a fan of Marilyn Manson in the I've 90s. I've always hated him. I've oh, always hated always? him. Well, always? Well, uh, always. Yeah. I wish I, I had I no I, had no reason why. I just hated him. I 
I, I don't know. I think I just, I really, I, I think I was, uh, I, I was, a, I was a weird kid and I was like, oh, he's weird too. <laughs> um, right. I think but a lot of people felt that way. Yeah. Not, not, not in this way. This was not a good look. So I'm ashamed no. to say, um, I, I'm a reformed person <laughs> um but if if you it, it's it's a really heavy watch so take care of yourself if you want to to go da- go down this um viewing but um that those that's that's what i got but what do you good. got okay um i wanted to shout out the podcast getting even with anita hill oh my god she just keeps delivering and delivering yeah, yeah. anita anita hill for president that's all I got to say. <laughs> yeah. And her voice is uh, really soothing. I don't oh, know. Something yes. about her voice. Yeah. I want her to adopt me. <laughs> <laughs> so she she tackles the tough questions about equality mm-hmm. and what it takes to get there. Mm-hmm. And um, each week she talks with people um, about improving our imperfect world and finding solutions. I love it. And uh, so, yeah, I listened to her most recent episode it was called the conversation about cosby with w <gasps> no w kamal bell kamal bell yeah <gasps> the creator of uh we need to talk about cosby and they talked about that and yeah it was really interesting i i should go to bed but i'm probably going to listen to listen this to it. tonight <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh so that is this land podcast um the uh specifically the episodes about the ikwa case coming up from the Supreme Court, the Phoenix Rising documentary, two-part documentary on HBO Max, and getting even with Anita Hill. And shout out, special shout out to that latest episode about the um, Cosby case and W. Kamau Bell, a comedian who's done a documentary about the Cosby case. Yeah. Well, this has been fun. God, I have to pee so bad. <laughs> yeah, this is a long one. <laughs> it was. Oh, but thank you for sticking around with us. Until next time, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. So uh, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now.